As you're taking your seat, go ahead and, and grab your Bible, and you can open up to Genesis chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here, and they're going to walk towards the back, and they'd love to put a Bible in your hand, so you can slip your hand up in the air, and they would uh, gladly get a Bible across to you, and I trust that would be an encouragement to you. If you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today, and uh, we're excited to be able to open God's Word together and we are continuing to march our way, even in this Advent season, all the way through Genesis. We will take a, a break on Christmas Eve, which is a Sunday this year, to do a special service. But up until that point, we're just going to keep moving through Genesis. And, uh, and this is a really unique chapter. I don't know if uh, I've talked to a few of you. I'm, I'm always really encouraged just to hear how some of you are, are kind of preparing yourself week to week for the, the Word of God. And I know um, talking to somebody even this morning, they read the passage in advance and uh, it was very clear that this passage is going to require a lot of hope. Uh, and and if, you, if you're confused, you won't be in a minute after we read it. Um, it is a messy passage. It's a passage that's filled with an immense amount of sin and an immense amount of failure. And the failure comes primarily in the form of parental failure, a father's failure. Nancy Piercy, she's an author, a Christian author, and, um, and she's also a professor. She wrote in, in her book, very important book, a new book called The Toxic War on Masculinity, and in this book, she looks at some data around parental influence upon children. And she cites a 35-year longitudinal study, okay? So over 35 years, and it looks at how parents are successful in passing on their religious, moral, and spiritual values to their children. And they're are two really surprising findings in this study that she cites. The first surprising finding is this, that fathers matter more than mothers. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? Uh, she goes on to say, it's not fair, it's just facts. And, and that's not to say mothers aren't significantly important. I hope you understand that. Uh, again, just the messenger. But the second thing that she says is surprising about the findings in this study is this, that what matters most in the father-child relationship is the close, loving, warm bond that is fostered between them. The study found that it isn't about the position or the role of the father in the home. It's not about his title as father. It's not even about maybe the, the title or position he holds in the community. Maybe he's a respected member in the community. Maybe even a hold an office in the church. Maybe he could even be an elder. None of those things ultimately matter when it comes to passing on the, the moral and the spiritual and the, the religious values to the children if he is perceived as being cold and distant, his children will not follow him. They won't adopt his spiritual values. And I mention that because, as I said earlier, Jacob in this passage seems to be a very cold and distant father. He is passive almost indifferent to the spiritual health and well-being of his own children. 
And it's shocking as we read this passage because earlier on we'd seen him make so much spiritual progress. Last week in the chapters we looked at, he was making so much spiritual progress or so it seemed. But here, he seems to be moving backwards. His position as a patriarch, as a father, his affluence, his honor or respected position in the community, it isn't enough to influence the religious, moral, and spiritual values of his children. Their failures in this passage are in one sense their own, but are in many ways the result of their father's spiritual failure. In this chapter, there are no heroes, there are only failures all around. It's so fitting that we read from the New City Catechism this morning that there are none righteous, no, not one, because if there's ever a passage in the Bible that proves that truth, it's this one. Let's read it together, and you might want to buckle up. We're going to read the entire passage, and then we're going to pull it apart. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done." But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised." 
Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem and with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? We left off in chapter 33, like I said, with Jacob making some significant spiritual progress. He had landed in Succoth and made an altar there, and he had named it after Yahweh God. In fact, the very last verse of chapter 33 gives to us that name of the altar, and it's not insignificant that it is named El Elohe Israel, which again contains the very name of God himself. But as we enter into chapter 34, the name of God is conspicuously absent. And that's even more pronounced when we get to the very first verse of chapter 35. Just look quickly with me. Look at the very first word. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In other words, this chapter is bookended by the name of God, but in between there is no mention of God, nor is there any thought of God. And the idea that we're supposed to pick up on here is that Jacob has failed to actually obey God. He has not done what he has vowed to do all the way back in chapter 28. He told God, he promised God, he made this significant and serious vow that he would go back to Bethel, but what we're finding out here is that he's only partially obeyed God. It's partial obedience, which in reality is total disobedience. He's settled instead 20 miles short of Bethel in Shechem in this willful, partial obedience. And as we'll see, his disobedience has consequences for his leadership or lack thereof in his family. I think we're supposed to pick up on this idea that Jacob, in walking in disobedience, has lost spiritual influence in the life of his family. It's made him ineffective, weak as a spiritual leader. 
And we're gonna look mainly at the failures of Jacob in this passage, and I'm gonna be pretty hard on him, I'm not gonna lie. I, and I wanna qualify this up front because I think a lot of the application of this passage can work towards a fathers or parents in raising their children. There's other layers of application here for sure, but I wanna I want just qualify this. Listen, it's possible, it's possible to be the best parent ever and have children who go off the rails. It's also possible to be the worst parent ever and to have kids who turn out relatively well. But generally speaking, and that's the principle I want to pick up on here, generally speaking, as a general axiom, just read through the book of Proverbs to find out that this is, this is almost universally true, the way in which we live our spiritual lives will have a direct impact and influence on those we love and are trying to lead. Our obedience to God will, generally speaking, reap a reward of righteousness in our kids, in those that we're discipling, in those that we love, in those that we lead. Not always, but generally. So I just want to highlight this principle as we walk our way through this passage. I want to look at some failures here, but here's what we need to take away from this. How we follow God can have a direct impact a direct impact on how we love God and how we help those we love follow God. So let's look at four failures to avoid so that we can faithfully follow God and lead others to do the same. The first failure we can pick up on in the life of Jacob is this, a failure to protect. A failure to protect. The chapter begins in verse one with a reference to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah in particular, that's important because the brothers who commit this mass murder on this village are the full brothers of Dinah. Their mother is also Leah. That's why there's this strong attachment and this, this anger and this frustration that flows so naturally out of them. They are closest to their sister. And here... Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, ventures out into the land of Canaan to see how the women here lived. She's curious. She wants to explore, to get a feel for the culture and the community. She's probably around the age of 15 to 17. If you do the math, you can kind of get to that kind of an age range. And I want to make it clear that she is a victim here for sure, full stop. But there is a hint here that she is doing something unwise, something unadvisable. She's young, think about this. She's in a foreign land, going out alone into a culture that is not always respectful or kind to women. It's almost like letting your teenage daughter go out in the middle of night in downtown Chicago. It's not good. And we already have some context that informs of this. Earlier in the Abrahamic narrative, twice, you remember what he does when he's going to Egypt or he goes uh, into a foreign land where there is Abimelech, a ruler, a leader? You remember what he does? He, he tells them that his wife is actually his sister. Why? He is fearful that they're going to take his wife and kill him. Apparently, listen, apparently there's some truth to his belief. And Isaac, he does the exact same thing. Why? Because this is a vicious culture. It doesn't treat women with great kindness and respect and dignity. And Jacob knew this. 
So there was a sense in which there is some responsibility on his shoulders. He should have warned her. He should have protected her. He should not have allowed this to happen. And you can also uh, remember that Dinah wouldn't be in this situation if Jacob had been where he was supposed to be. If he had did what he was supposed to do, what he had committed to do. Jacob was not where God wanted him to be geographically and spiritually, and this left her particularly vulnerable. She's met by Shechem, who is uh, titled here the prince of the land. He's obviously an important person. And notice there's a rapid succession of verbs that is used here. He saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. It's intended to pack a punch. It's motivated by lust and sinful desire. This is a man who is simply following through on that pathology of sin. He sees, he seizes, he enjoys, and it leaves shame and humiliation. This is the nature of sin. This is what happened all the way back in the garden, and this is what continues to happen every time people pursue sin. This account kind of stirs up some memories of another account that happens later in the the Old Testament with another father who fails to protect his daughter, and that's King David. If you remember the story... The son of David, Amnon, attacks and rapes his sister, Tamar. And in that situation, David, not only does he fail to protect his daughter, he fails, just like Jacob in this scenario, to do anything about it. He doesn't respond appropriately in any way, shape, or form, and the consequences of his inaction and his lack of leadership are going to wreak havoc in his personal life and his family life until the very day he dies. But unlike that situation where Amnon rapes his sister and then the text tells us that he then hates his sister, his soul hates her, here we see something else take place. The opposite of that, Shechem loves her. Verse 3, it's it's almost stunning when it's described. It says, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and he spoke tenderly to her. Now, I just want to acknowledge that if we're looking at this and trying to get some dating advice, if you're single in here, this is for you, this is the exact backwards way it's supposed to work, okay? This is not the way you go about relationships, both in the ancient world nor in our contemporary modern culture. In fact, the way you're supposed to go about dating is you're supposed to be drawn to somebody You're supposed to then cultivate a relationship and develop a love for that person, and you're supposed to speak tenderly to them, and then you're supposed to enter into a relationship, not where you take them, but where they're given to you, right? And and then you get to enjoy the fruit of that relationship, the oneness of that relationship and physical intimacy. That is the way God designs it to work. In verse five through seven, notice that Jacob doesn't say anything or do anything. Again, there's this passive indifference. It's, it's a failure to protect that brings, uh, that will lead, excuse me, to disastrous consequences. And I just want to acknowledge, you say, well, what's the, what's the most important application of this passage? Here it is right here. I don't fail to protect those you love. 
Work hard. See it as being critical to part of your role. If you're a parent, it's part of your role with your children. If you're a Christian, it's part of your role with your brother and sisters in Christ. We are called to protect one another. But, but I think in order to do that in a helpful way, we actually need to be realistic about the dangers that we are facing in the world around us. We need to be aware that we're often going out into a a certain kind of of environment. Maybe it's a cultural environment where our thinking and our worldview is being tested and shaped and attacked. And what we need to understand is there is a desperate need for the people of God to not throw themselves all the time into dangerous places, but to find refuge in safe places. And I want to suggest to you, especially if you're a parent in here, your home, your home is intended by God to be a safe place for your children. It is intended to be a safe place for their spiritual growth and development and formation. It's a place where you are to raise them up in a way that makes them able to walk out into the world and avoid danger, flee from danger, to be protected, to know how to say no to the right things. The wrong things, I should say, and say yes to the right things. I want to also suggest that a great application of this would be the church. The church, what we're doing here together, should be a place of spiritual protection and formation. In fact, the home is kind of a microcosm of the church, but the two are very tightly linked together. That's why the New Testament calls this the family of God. We are supposed to be a place where we protect one another. And I want to maybe put the image in your mind. When you think about your home and you think about the church, I want you to think of it as being a sacred place, a place like a garden, like the Garden of Eden, or a temple, or a garden temple, if you will, just like the Garden of Eden. There, the the design of God was that, that the presence of God was there among the people of God, and God gave good boundaries that would lead his people to blessing. And we need to think of our homes and our church as a kind of garden temple where, listen, we cast out what doesn't belong and we cultivate what leads to life. As a practical application for parents in this place, I wonder, are you aware of what's going on under your own roof with your children? Are you aware of what you're maybe unsuspectingly allowing to enter into that garden sanctuary? Are you watching carefully what your children are doing, what they're hearing, what they're seeing, what's available for them to access? It's always shocking to me to find out that there are many parents, listen, our houses right now in this technological age are filled with devices. It is shocking to me to regularly find out that Christian parents are not protecting their kids properly by paying attention to the kind of things they can access access and putting up barriers so they can't get there. And some, I know some of you are saying, not my kid. Yes, your kid. Your kid is not capable on their own of preventing Satan's attacks from getting to them. You have a job to do, parents. Your responsibility right now in the life of your young kids is not to be their best friend. It is to be their protector. It is to do everything in your power to prevent them from, listen, being manipulated and deceived and destroyed by Satan who is a serpent. If he can slither his way into the garden and deceive unfallen human beings, believe me, 
He can get to you, and he can get to your kids. Parents, I just want to urge you. Men in particular, you need to see your primary role, whether it's in your home or in the life of this church. You have to view your life and your role as being a protector, a provider, and a leader. We need to learn from what Jacob does and does not do here. Jacob is totally passive. He's not going to say anything, and he's going to let his kids run rampant and out of control. As a church, let me just maybe encourage you, like, how do I do this as, as an individual? How do I make sure I'm being protected? Whether you're a parent, a child, whether you're single or married, how do I make sure I'm being rightly protected? Here's how you do that, biblically speaking. Be locked into a local church where the Bible is taught, where people believe the Bible, and where people agree that the Bible is actually describing the way the world is. We need to recognize this is the safe place and we need to be locked in and committed to one another so that we can actually help one another through the difficulties and challenges we face as we go out among the Canaanites. Secondly, there's a failure to correct. There is for sure a failure to protect, but I think there was a chance here given to Jacob to correct some things. And in verses 8 through 12, what we find out is that Shechem's father, Hamor, comes to speak to Jacob directly and to broker a deal for Dinah. It is not a deal in good faith, as we will later see. There are sinful motivations. There are selfish motivations lying behind this. But here we have Hamor speaking And he's describing how his son desperately wants Dinah to marry her. And then he goes on to talk about a bigger deal. We can make this a way of life. We can assimilate into the culture together. We can become one. And we can, you know, we can, you can trade. You can take wives from us. We'll take wives from you. We'll do business together. We'll live together as one big happy family. Hamor, whose name in Hebrew means donkey, speaks fitting to his name. He is a giant donkey. (laughs) Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he, he says something really important. He says that civilizations are really defined by what they prohibit. That that's how you can kind of understand the nature of a culture and a society. And and actually, that's the very same way God defines in the Old Testament and describes the culture of his people. Do you notice that the the Ten Commandments are all framed in the negative, right? You shall not. You shall not. It's about what they prohibit. The standards that are determined and agreed upon in the culture say so much about the the sinfulness or righteousness of the culture. And here, one of the things we need to see is that Hamor seems to indicate that what's taking place between Shechem and Dinah, this rape, this defilement, this shame, this humiliation, it's actually pretty normal. It's not that big of a deal. It's like a, a culture that openly praises Access to pornography or sex trafficking or prostitution. 
And here, he doesn't come notice to apologize, to acknowledge that what his son did was wrong and wicked and to make restitution and to accept what justice requires. What would justice, here's the question, in this context require? Well, interestingly, the Old Testament is going to tell us in Deuteronomy 22:25 what the exact punishment is for this crime. In fact, the very same terminology is used in Deuteronomy 22:25. Listen to what Moses writes. He says, "But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die." I want you to see too that the Judeo-Christian worldview values and dignifies women. A man guilty of this kind of crime in God's eyes is worthy of death. Look at his suggestion again. Not let me make this right. Let's do life together. <laughs> Could you imagine? Just put yourself in this situation. If, if you are a father and you have a young daughter which I do, imagine your daughter's rapist, the father, comes to you and proposes that this is all good and you should hand over your daughter to marry his son and you guys can just go on living life together, what would be going through your mind? Can I ask you a question? What would you say? How about another question? Would you stay silent? Because Jacob, in this scene, doesn't even open his mouth. He's hearing this call to assimilate into the culture. Hamor is is offering to Jacob what God has promised to Jacob, but only if Jacob embraces the Canaanite way of life. And this is exactly what our world is saying to us today, right? All that God has promised to you, we'll give it to you if you live like we live. If you accept our morals and our values, our virtues, and stop talking about the Bible's version of these things, and we'll be one with you. And we'll give you everything God has promised you, but it's got to be done our way. When you read through the Old Testament, God's people are warned repeatedly about getting too cozy with the nations around them. Worldly temptation must be met by biblical correction. The world can't give you what God has promised you. That's the lie of Satan. After the Exodus event, they are told, the Israelites are told to remove them, the Canaanites, from their land, lest they become ensnared by their religion and their gods. They're not allowed to take foreign wives, and this has nothing to do with racial or ethnic realities. This is a spiritual reality. It is about being set apart in devotion to God. And we're shown throughout the scriptures that we're going to have to live with these people, but we cannot be like these people over and over again. That's the message of the scriptures to the people of God. And Jacob, here, it it seems that he was so concerned with his appearance before his pagan neighbors when he should have been concerned about his devotion to God. He should have focused on correcting, not cohabitating I want, I want you to hear, there's, there's a really strong message in this passage about not getting too cozy with Canaan. 
And I think that the message is so relevant for us today because it's so easy, right? It's, it's so easy to just begin to slip into this world and to blend into this world and to not stand out in this world. It's so easy to miss that this world is trying to catechize, catechize you and catechize me. Okay, the word catechize simply means to teach or disciple, which is why, again, by the way, this is the very reason we're doing the Westminster, uh, sorry, not the Westminster, the New City Catechism at the start of our services. We know what we're trying to do. We're trying to push back against the world's attempt to catechize us. And so what we're doing is we're actively fighting against it by, by not letting them frame the questions and certainly not letting them give us the answers. We want the word of God to tell us what is right and true. We want the word of God to correct our thinking, amen? Okay, so what the world does is it tries to catechize you, not, not in this nice, neat question and answer format, right? Not, the world's not out there saying like, hey, what do you believe about sex? Answer, believe this. What do you believe about gender? Answer this. What do you believe about purity? What do you believe about pleasure? What do you believe about satisfaction, happiness? That's not what the world does. They just pump the message at you all the time, and they, get, they feed it to you. And, and listen, if you're not careful, you're just going to eat it up. There has to be an act of resistance to the way the world is trying to catechize us. The answer for the way we're being assaulted in this world is not to flee and hole ourselves up in a bunker, okay? We're not waiting for Elon Musk to build a Christian colony on Mars so we can escape. Jesus actually prayed in John 17 that God would not take us out of this world, but would protect us. Why? Because he needs us here. This world needs us here because we have something to say, which is why it's so shocking that here, in the midst of such grievous personal sin, Jacob says nothing. He says nothing. We are called to be exiles, sojourners, strangers, aliens. And we must live like that amongst those in the world. And by the way, when we do that, oftentimes we will look strange. We will look weird to people in the world. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be an alternative community. And sometimes we are most relevant when we appear to be irrelevant. We cannot reach the world if we are too busy trying to reflect the world. We must operate as if we are part of a, another kingdom and that this world is not our home. And by the way, they're not going to like everything we have to say to them. But that's okay. We need to say it anyways. Jacob hears in this section, but he does not speak. And in order to correct, we cannot, like Jacob, remain silent, but we must choose to speak with courage and conviction. We must speak up, we must speak out, and we must speak into the things going on around us that are abhorrent to God. 
Our correction is aimed at their salvation. I need you to hear this because some of us, we think like we're just gonna kind of you know, get on a rally and, and you know, get our picket signs and just scream at people through a bullhorn. That's not what God is calling us to. When we correct, we aren't just telling them what's bad and wrong and ugly. We're actually telling them what's good and true and beautiful. We're trying to correct their their thinking about where they think they find identity and value and purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction and hope and life. We're trying to go after all of that. We're trying to expose it for what it is to say, "This this is not, this is bankrupt. It can't give you, it can't give you what you're looking for. You're trying to get what only God can give you and the world will never satisfy. It just won't. And I love what what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. He says this, the aim of our instruction is love. It's love. All of our correction for any, but for one another in the family of God, for people in the world who desperately, listen, they desperately need to hear the good news of the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. The aim of our instruction is very simple. It's love. It's love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So why do we fail to correct well, let me ask you some questions. I, I want to ask you these. I really, uh, this is a really serious moment right now that I, I, hope, I hope you can ask these questions with a, a kind of genuine sincerity before the Lord. Ask this question of yourself first. Is my life and the life of my family about pleasing God or fitting in? Am I more concerned with how sin offends God or with how I may seem offensive? Am I entangled with the world in such a way that the world is shaping me more than I'm a shining light in the world? Am I choosing comfort and convenience over conviction and character? Am I choosing cowardice over courage? Am I going along to get along? Is the beating of my heart to make much of Christ or that my life would make sense to the world around me? Don't build too close to Shechem. As the saying goes, he who marries the spirit of this age will be a widow in the next. Third, we see a failure to direct Again, Simeon and Levi in verses 13 through 24, they're the ones who seem to be in charge here. It's their sister, after all, their their full sister that's been assaulted and defiled. And on one hand, they're right to want justice. But instead of justice rightly pursued, as we read about in Deuteronomy They display this rash and unbridled passion. And like father, like son, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. They come up with this deceitful plan. They're they're deceivers just like their father. They've learned the wrong things from their father. And what's really interesting here with this plan they come up with, which, by the way, it's just shocking to me that the men of this village go along with this plan. (laughs) Like... There's a sense in which, like, you guys, you guys got what's coming to you. This... But it's interesting because the Canaanites want to make Israel into Canaan, and the Israelites, at least on the surface, want to make the Canaanites into Israel. 
but both of them are motivated by sin and selfishness. And again, what what we're seeing, what we're supposed to see here is what is absent from the passage. Jacob, the patriarch, the father, whose name was changed to Israel, is supposed to be, do you notice that his name in this passage is reverts back to Jacob, by the way? He's not, he's not acting like Israel. He's not the change and transform man. He's back to his old ways. He's back to his sinful ways. He's back to his lack of trust in God. He's back to his selfishness. Jacob should have directed them toward devotion to God. Jacob should have stepped up and, and shown them the way. Instead, his failure to lead brings about the destruction of man. And let's be honest, when we read this passage, you know, these, these men on the third day, when, when listen, they're, they're in the most pain, that's when they attack. You know, how can they wipe out an entire village? This is like, it's kind of like the Hatfield and the McCoys, okay? These are two tribal clans. It's not like they're killing thousands of people. But regardless, part of us finds this appalling, but if we're honest, part of us finds this appealing. I mean, there's a reason why the, the, the revenge flick genre is hugely popular in Hollywood. It draws big box office numbers, right? Pretty soon we're going to be on to John Wick 14. Why? I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't, I'm not advocating that you go see the movie. All I know is this. That somebody killed his dog, and so everybody's got to die. Okay? <laughs> it's endless. It's not going to stop. And this is obviously so much more serious, right? This is so personal. This isn't a dog. This is a human being. This is a sister. This is a daughter. She's been humiliated. Her life is forever ruined because of this. The damage is significant. And so part of us reads this and we're like, they got what was coming to them. But we also know what the scriptures say, don't we? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. The Canaanites, this was not a good faith negotiation. Verse 21 lets us know that they were in it for themselves. Look, we'll get them in and then all of their stuff will be ours. Even so, this unholy war is not commendable in the sight of God. It is condemnable. In fact, Jacob is later going to say, in Genesis 49, listen to this, 5 through 7, he'll say this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." This is not a picture of biblical justice. It is a war crime. And how ironic that they would use the sacred sign of the covenant, which was a reminder of God's promise to bless them and through them become a blessing to the nations to instead deceive the nations and destroy the nations. Jacob has failed to direct his family toward devotion to God. He's failed to lead them in paths of righteousness for, for, for his name's sake. 
Where is Jacob to tell them what God wants? Where is Jacob to tell them what would be right and true and pleasing to the Lord? Where is Jacob to tell them what true justice and righteousness looks like in this situation? As we look at this horrific scene, it does direct us and our hearts in a very profound way to the mercy and grace of God. Because as we look at this passage, we are reminded once again that there are none righteous, no, not one. And the greatest injustice of all is our cosmic treason against our Creator. Every one of us is guilty. We have profaned his name and we have broken his law and every one of us deserves the very fate inflicted upon these sinners. We deserve death. The sign of the covenant that Jacob's sons used to destroy points us ultimately to the promised son who would come to save. It's the irony in this passage. That through sinners and for sinners would come the Savior of the world. He would become a curse for us and receive the payment we deserve so that in him we might be blessed and become a blessing in the world. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we do not want to fail to direct you to our only hope and your only hope because you are just like me and just like all of us. You're a sinner in need of a savior. God is so kind and gracious. And again, in this Advent season, we are celebrating the fact that God saw us in all of our sin and instead of leaving us hopeless, he came from heaven to earth to save us. And all of this, again, it's, it's in fulfillment of the very promise made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it began all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against the creator. God promised that there would come a promised seed, the offspring of Abraham, a true son of Jacob who will make us children of God. Lastly, we must avoid a failure to dissect. And again, as you're tracking through this, there has been a failure to protect, to correct, to direct. And sadly, it ends with this failure of Jacob to dissect. To dissect his own heart and to dissect the situation properly. Finally, we see Jacob speaks And surely he's going to to correct what's been done here. But if you read it again or you, you just look at it here, Jacob is not concerned to let truth prevail. Verse 30, it says that he looks at his two sons and he says, you have brought trouble. Just notice the amount of times a personal pronoun is used here, okay? You have brought trouble on me. By making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. Both I, oh, and by the way, my household. It's like tagged on. Do you catch that? Jacob, in, in this last scene, is pathetic 
for what he does not say. He does not condemn the massacre. He does not condemn his sons for breaking the law of Lex Talionis, proportional uh, punishment for the crime. He does not mention that they violated their contract with Shechem. He said nothing about their desecration of Israel's most precious symbol of faith. And of course, there was not a word of concern about his just-raped daughter, Dinah. His sons have to concoct this evil plan. Then they go in, they murder all of the men, they take their sister back, and then they plunder all of the goods and possessions. They take them for their own. They take God's blessing, but they do it their way. Jacob's only concern was his survival, to save his own skin, and then by association, that of his family. And here we see what the problem has been all along. He is not looking to the heart of the matter, which is his very own heart. Everything is about me, my, I. It's all about him. And so this chapter ends with, their, with these sons fiercely shouting at Jacob, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? supposed to land like a sledgehammer. And you notice that Jacob is stunned into silence because this is the very thing he should have been pondering all along. How could I allow something like this to take place? And it all began, remember, by his failure to do what he vowed that he would do. And that's why chapter 35, verse 1, God speaks and reminds him of what he was supposed to do. And in effect, he's saying, listen, if you do not do what you say you say you're going to do and you do not be who you're supposed to be, there will be consequences. There will be pain. There will be sin and brokenness. But we, like Jacob, are blind to our own blindness. We are just like him. We're quick to see sin in others, but slow to spot it in ourselves. We must become spiritual surgeons. Able not only to see, right, the speck of of dust in our brother's eye, but able to see the log, the roof beam that's sticking out of our face. Able to dissect the heart, to clean out the sickness of sin and the disease of death. We have, we do, and we will fail at much, but we must not fail in being quick to repent. If we do, we will miss the opportunities to rejoice in God's goodness, in his grace, in his kindness, for it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Our lives are all marked by failure. Every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every day, every moment, every hour of our lives, we are in need of him. If you're here today and you're like, you're looking at your life and saying, I've been such a failure. I failed as a parent. I failed as a child. I failed as a person. I'm just, I'm just, my life is a mess. I've done so much damage. If that's what you're saying here today and you're like, what hope do I have? Our hope is not in being a perfect parent, okay? Our hope is not in being a perfect child or being or having, by the way, perfect children. Our hope is not in being perfect people. Our hope is in our perfect father and in his perfect son who perfectly obeyed the law in word, in thought, and in deed. And he did it all. He did it all 
so that he could be a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me. That's where our hope is, Christian. That's the only hope we have. And it's the hope that we hold out to the world around us.